Okay, I'm going to be reading John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember the words I have spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teachings, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If If I had not done among them what no one else did... They would not be guilty of sin. But now that they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of the truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. And you also also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning." Thanks. Before the service started, Ralph looked at me and said, trying to cover a chapter of John in one sermon, whoo, and he is, he's dead right. There are probably a dozen people sitting here right now who have been gifted in teaching, who have been granted the gift of, te- sometimes I think it's a curse that, you know, we have to teach, 
And each of them could probably do a half dozen sermons out of every chapter of John. And so you're looking at a chapter um, that we're pulling one Sunday on that could have 50 different sermons preached on it. We could go a year, just do a round robin, and go through it and hit 50 different things. So I'm going to tell you up front where I am going with my one chance to sermonize John 15. I'm going to try and disabuse myself and you of the notion that Jesus was a university lecturer or a theology PhD or that he came to stand in a high pulpit and dole out wisdom to the rabble. It's easy with having leather-bound Bibles that were translated and interpreted by university lecturers and theology PhDs to read the words of Jesus as though he was some sort of a stoic academic with his two fingers, as he's always painted with his two fingers bestowing wisdom on the world. Um, Now, I I love academics. I hope to one day be an academic. Um, Jesus was undeniably smart. Um, He debated academics when he was 12, but the whole point of him living as a man was so that he could communicate with everyone directly in a language they could follow, and not from some unreachable pedestal. Uh, When we look at his words, keep in mind that the people he usually chose to speak to had nicknames like the Sons of Thunder and Simon the Ruffian. Jesus spoke like one of them, even if the translation sometimes buries it. Um, Do you ever wonder how the Bible got divided into chapters? Give me the first slide, Jav. This is a stained glass window in Canterbury Cathedral in England, and uh, this is a man named Stephen Langton. He uh, lived in the 12th and 13th century. He was a theology professor at the University of Paris, so an intellectual. Uh, He was a cardinal in the Catholic Church. He became the Archbishop of Canterbury, so career clergy. Uh, This was during the reign of King John, who you might recognize as Prince John, the phony king of England from the Robin Hood cartoon. Uh, I bring up Prince John often because he is Angela's 24th great-grandfather. King John hated Stephen. They clashed over religion and politics. Uh, There was an international incident with the Pope over uh, Stephen's nomination as the archbishop. He didn't want him to be the archbishop. It took him several years to ever get there. Um, uh, This led ultimately to uh, Stephen Langton authoring, co-authoring the Magna Carta, which uh, helped shape the U.S. Constitution 500 years later. You can see, I don't know if you can read this, it says Magna Carta on his little scroll there. Um, Give me the next slide, John. This is the pulpit in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., Uh, It was installed in 1907. It was carved from stone that was taken from the Bell Harry Tower in the Canterbury Cathedral, where that stained glass window was from. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. preached his final Sunday sermon from this pulpit. And right on the front, right there, is Stephen Langton handing the Magna Carta to King John. Stephen also did something for us, the amateurs, the ruffians. He divided the Bible into chapters, the chapters that we use. Now, the cartoon Robin Hood is fictional, but Stephen was real. 
He had experience in academics, theology, church structure, and politics. And so if you needed to choose a culturally influential figure to divide the Bible for the ease of reading for the amateurs in English, maybe he was a good choice. But who did not divide the Bible into chapters? The people who wrote the Bible did not divide the Bible into chapters. And so John did not give us chapter 15. He gave us the whole story all at once. Thanks to Stephen, chapter 15 is uh, one of John's shorter chapters. Uh, Katie got the benefit of that today. She didn't have to go through one of the massive ones. And if you look at it in isolation, it may not give you the structure that John intended. You, you, you might miss some things, and that leaves us with a problem. Uh, if you th- have a Bible that has Jesus' words in red, I'm sure a few of you do, you'll notice something. This entire chapter is red. There's not a black word in it. That means it's all Jesus talking. Now, I think all of the parts of the Bible answer to what Jesus said, to Jesus' words. If the words of Jesus say one thing and another biblical author says something that on the surface seems contradictory, Jesus wins that discussion every time. So all the red words are great, and it's cool to have them set apart for you like that. But in John 15, that means we have no narrative at all. It's the only chapter in John like this that's all in red. Jesus doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't do anything. He just talks. If you read it in a bubble in the isolation of Stephen Langton's chapter divisions, that means you can miss things. So if there's no narrative, if there's nothing, no, no action taking place in John 15, we have to build a narrative. So let's start by doing that. Let's build a narrative so we know what Jesus is talking about. First of all, the big narrative, the worldwide view of John 15. Jesus came into a world in which religion, politics, and personal ambition all fed each other. They were all working together basically to empower the few and make sure they stayed in power and became more powerful. And he talked about, Jesus talked about this in Matthew 23. This is 23:23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So religious leaders were using religion to make themselves look good, to make themselves powerful, but the driving factors behind their actions were ambition rather than justice and mercy. That's nothing new. In Matthew 9... We read this, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is a common theme. This is not the only two places Jesus talks about this, about the, the powerful missing the point of religion. 
uh, Pharisees were making sure that they associated only with the right kind of people. Look at Jesus. He's sitting with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, and you know, they, they could list for a day all the bad people he was, he was eating with. They were trying to sit with the right kind of people so they could raise their own status and consolidate power. But Jesus said that mercy should be making the decisions for them and not their reputations. And when Jesus said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he was quoting Hosea. Hosea was a book that's 800 years old at this point. Nothing had changed. 800 years in America's history means 300 years before Columbus. That's how long he was talking about. So nothing new here, and I'm going to offer you this bit of secret knowledge. If you haven't noticed, it still hasn't changed. Religious labels are still used to gain power and wealth and reputation. We certainly see it in modern American politics, where for two, three months before every election, the word of Jesus and the word, the name, the word Jesus, the word God, the word faith, the word Christian are bandied around so people can get your vote, and afterward, the poor and the weak are ignored. Give me the next slide. This is a path in southern France. This is a path that actually, if you go to the right, it starts going up the, up the cliff. And it's in uh, 1994, amateur spelunkers were looking for new caves in these cliffs. Um, they found something that was named ultimately the Chauvet Cave. Um, give me the next slide, Jav. Here's what they found. Signatures of people who'd been in the cave 30,000 years before. And not just that. Give me the next slide. Paintings of horses. The next one. Rhinos. You know how many rhinos are in South France right now? Zero. Next slide. Lions. And another thing they found. Bears. There were paintings of bears. There's also real bears. See the skull? These are leg bones. The entire floor of the cave is littered with cave bear skeletons. Bears had been in this cave around the same time as the artists were. Look real carefully at this painting. Give me this one. Here's, this is a horse. And if you look real careful, right here are old bear scratches... And then on top of the bear scratches, they made a horse. And on top of the horse, there are more bear scratches. The people who made the art in Chauvet Cave found gaps of time where they could get into the cave, make something beautiful, and then leave the cave back to the bears. Now, follow me. I know this metaphor is too cute by half, but this is, it, I swear to you, this is the first thing I thought of when I saw this artwork. The Chauvet Cave illustrates the worldwide narrative of John 15. Predators have been dominating for thousands of years. Using God's name to serve their own ends, Jesus found a time to come in and make something beautiful. He speaks art over the damage the predators have made, and almost immediately the predators return and reassert themselves. They make their marks over the beauty that Jesus created. And we can still see the art and the beauty that Jesus created. Don't get me wrong. You can still see that horse. But we can also see the marks of the predators. 
There's nothing wrong with cave bears doing what bears do. This is just a metaphor. But religious predators were here before Jesus came, and they stayed after Jesus left. That's the big narrative that Jesus stepped into. Now let's look into the small narrative. Tell you, let me tell you about the go sandwich. John 14, 13. He's uh, teaching about God's, following God's commandments and traveling where God tells him to go. Jesus says, come now, let us leave. Other translations say, let us go hence. Give me the slide. Greek word, go. And the, the Greek word is ago. Isn't that convenient? That uh, means go. It means something like to lead or to carry forward. Um, we're in a different culture, of course, but we can read it kind of like we might use the word. Uh, let's go, meaning let's, let's get out of here, but also let's go, like a coach giving a speech for the team. Uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you right now. I'm here, so let's do what, I'm going to do what God tells me. The prince of the world is an enemy we can beat. Let's go. He's not just saying, let's stand up and leave this room. It's let's take care of this. These things I've been telling you about, let's go. It reminds me of when Riley was playing lacrosse, and before um, they'd go on the field, the loudest kid in the group would say, Saxons on three. One, two, three. Saxons! Let's go. That kind of thing. Then, way over in chapter 18, give me that slide, Jab. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. They left. They go. Exercomai is the word here. It means to come out from somewhere. So literally leaving the room. This is the go sandwich. Two words, both meaning go, having specific meanings. There's a mission directive to the disciples in chapter 14, a physical action where they start the mission in chapter 18. As far as we know, after Jesus tells them, let's go in chapter 14, they don't go anywhere until chapter 18. It takes them three chapters to get out the door. That seems odd. Why would Jesus say they should leave and then ramble on for three chapters? It only seems odd until you think about your own life experience. Remember, Jesus and the disciples were also people. They had behaviors like people. When you have people over for dinner, when do the best conversations take place? In our house, it's after everyone says, well, we should probably go. They stand up, they might gather their dishes, their kids might pick up the toys they played with, they're standing by the front door or on the porch to say goodbye, and we realize all the important things we haven't said yet, right? We have stood on the porch for an hour. But people don't go. They're leaving, but they're not leaving. It seems like that's what happened in John 15. They were leaving, but they weren't leaving. Chapters 13 through 17, a quarter of the book of John, take place in one room over one meal. That's the small narrative. One room, Jesus eating with his friends. Stephen Langton split chapter 15 off by itself and made it look like a standalone. Like it don't, it read, read by itself, it feels like a mountaintop sermon that Jesus maybe spent hours working on. I think Jesus is packing up leftovers. This is just great conversation. 
That's all it is. They're leaving, but they're not leaving. Give me a slide, Jeb. This is a vineyard in the Judean hillside today. Uh, the first communion wine at this dinner probably came from a, a vineyard very near this one. Verse 1, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, this meal they're having, it's too early in the year to have any table grapes, but he may, in fact, be handling the goblet that the wine is in. I can, I can picture him handing it off to Peter. Here, drink the rest of this. Get rid of it. Peter's the kind of guy who would have finished off the wine. He looks at him and says, I'm the true vine. Here you go. Viticulturists at Hebrew University say that when uh, our agriculture, the agriculturists, when archaeologists dig up first century houses in the Judean hillside today, half of them have wineries in them. Half of them. They figured that the per capita intake of wine was about 300 liters per person, almost a quart a day per person, man, woman, and child. When Jesus talks about the vine, when he talks about wine, this is an everyday thing for them. They know immediately what he's talking about. They're surrounded by, by vineyards, and they all know how to make wine. Everyday objects. Verse 3, you, have already, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. Remember what Jesus had just done with the towel? Maybe he had his towel still tucked in his belt. You're already clean. Remember when we just did this? Maybe he pulls it out to remind them. Again, just an everyday object he has with them. He's cleaning up the toys. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Uh, I don't know if you know this. uh, Roasting and smoking meat over burning grapevines is an ancient practice in Europe and the Middle East. You can get recipes online today for Easter lamb roasted over grapevines. You can also actually go online Order dried grapevines for fuel direct from vineyards. Give me the next slide, Jeb. These are uh, vines that this vineyard actually uses in their pizza oven. And between flatbread, olive oil, and meats, a pizza is not too far off of what Jesus and the disciples were eating at the Last Supper. It's just assembled differently. Maybe the flatbread and the Passover lamb in the upper room was cooked over dried vines. Jesus might have even grabbed a handful of dried grapevines off the hearth and showed it to them. If you don't remain in me, such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, obviously, I'm imagining what might have happened in this after-meal event. My point is, when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, we shouldn't think of Jesus standing behind the National Cathedral pulpit. He's using the little narrative in the room, the everyday, the vines, the towel, to talk about the big narrative, the world and its never-ending supply of predators. The predators are people who the Father has cut off, people who took what was beautiful, 
God's promises about mercy and justice, and use that language to serve themselves and have done since the beginning of time. One of my favorite things about Jesus is his love, this love of the everyday. Um, He's, of course, full of the Father's glory. He can heal lepers. He can walk on water, and that's a vital part of his ministry. But he never seems more glorious to me than when he steps away from the miracles and does everyday things. He goes to festivals to celebrate with his people. He invites his friends over for dinner and has great spiritual conversations about vines and towels. I cannot wait until chapter 21. This is after the resurrection. The disciples have been working all night, and they come to the beach, and Jesus has made them breakfast. When Jesus does miracles, we see God, and when Jesus spends time with his friends, talking and helping them, we see the man who does not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but who takes up a servant's nature. And that is something glorious. If we had the power of God, if I had the power of God like Jesus had, I would want to use it all the time. I would struggle not to use it. Jesus seems to crave the everyday instead. That's why he's talking to the disciples about grapes and firewood. Okay, remain in the vine. Everybody here who's a plant, raise your hand. No one here's a plant. So what does all the cutting off and remaining in the vine mean to a human being? Uh, Jesus is talking about resources and outcomes. Jesus is the vine. That means he's the way believers, the branches, you and me, get spiritual resources. If we're getting our input from Jesus, we stay spiritually alive, and we have a certain outcome, and that's what Jesus calls the fruit. If people make other choices and they're not using what Jesus offers, God, the gardener, removes them. I don't think this is about whether you go to heaven or not. I don't think that's the, the teaching. It's, it's about what a person takes in and what the results are, what they put out. Uh, give me another slide. This is um, a slide called, this is a piece of, an icon is what you call it, called Christ the True Vine by Andreas Ritzos. It's probably the last half of the 15th century, Um, and during the 15th and 16th century especially, you see a lot of art that looks very similar to this. People essentially copied this pattern and made paintings of Jesus talking about the vine and the branches. Um, that really the only difference is between these different icons is what the artist chooses to do with Judas. Do they include him? Do they cut him out? Some of them only have 11 branches. Some of them include Judas because he was at the meal for most of the time. Some of them drop Judas and uh, substitute someone else. This one, the artist has dropped Judas. He's not here. And he stuck uh, John the Baptist on right here. And that's Paul. And I like this one. This is my favorite version of this painting because right here, that is a girl. I like that. I'm in favor of anyone who admits women have a role in the world. A lot of these paintings, it was all men. I really like this one because it has a woman on it. Um, this, it's hard to know whether this is Jesus' mother or Mary Magdalene. If you look at the art of the time, they're very often painted Quite similarly, they're painted with the red robe, uh, same poses, same, same uh, hood pulled up. Um, the Virgin Mary is usually painted in red because 
the artists thought, well, red's a royal color, but Mary Magdalene's painted in red because they think she's probably the woman caught in adultery, and so they think of red as the prostitute color. I don't think there's a rule, but, you know, whatever the artist feels, they both end up in red like this. This is probably uh, his mother, Mary, because she usually gets the gold fringe. If you look real close, there's gold right here. Uh, Either way, um, this is a strong woman who deserved recognition as a foundational branch among the men. You know, this is the, the very first believer in the world was Mary. The very first person to see Jesus alive and evangelize was Mary Magdalene. So bravo to Andreas Ritzos for, for including her. Uh, Jesus the vine. Question, what is the resource Jesus the vine offers? What are the results? What are the fruits? Uh, we've been talking about bundles of vines, right, as firewood, We can think of the rest of the chapter as two bundles, as though there's a bundle like this and a bundle like this. In uh, verses 9 to 17, Jesus talks about people who use him as their vine, and in verses 18 to 25, Jesus talks about people who don't use him as the vine. What's the difference? Hint, the first section, 9 to 17, the word love is used nine times. The next section, 18 to 25, the word hate is used six times. Two bundles of branches. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no, man than, no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Jesus is stripping down religion for his friends. Friends, by the way, is a word he uses three times when he's talking to them. It's not a sermon. There were hundreds of commandments people had to follow, according to religious professionals, at the time, Jesus' friends were fishermen and blue collars, not religious professionals. So Jesus makes things simple. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love. My command, love each other. The resource Jesus offers, the fruits he wants to see from his friends, same thing. Love. And as we know from 1 Corinthians, love does not serve itself. I'm the vine. You want to be a part of this? You want to be my friends? Look out for other people, even if it costs you something. That's my command. The second section, the second bundle of branches, verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as, as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. You can picture Jesus holding these two bundles of sticks. Some choose love, some choose hate, and maybe he throws the hate into the fire. Keep in mind when Jesus and the disciples had trouble, when they were hated, they were often hated by people who used the same religious language that they did. Temple leadership, Pharisees, etc., Pagans often talked with them rationally. They would have discussions. They would, you know, speak to them. Not always, but often they would just have a discussion. 
but the world was not necessarily people out there, but people close by. They, they talk your language, but they hate you. The world hates you because they hate me. The difference between them and the world wasn't ethnic, it wasn't national, it wasn't religious heritage. The difference was which vine they were stuck to. Jesus provided and produced love. The world provided and produced hatred. It's really just another way of saying that the world is driven by self-interest, which wasn't what Jesus expected. And then in verse 26, when the advocate comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. This is Jesus promising that they're going to have a way to figure out which vine is the real thing. He'll tell you. The Spirit will tell you what the true vine is. Okay, applications. First of all, find holy meaning in the everyday. Uh, Miracles are great. Pray for miracles. Expect miracles. They display power. They display the supernatural. But if you purposely recognize holiness in the things you experience all the time, in the garden, in a meal with friends, in a conversation on the porch, you're emulating Jesus. That's just as holy. Number two, seek out ways to love. Okay, on the surface, I know this sounds like basic kid stuff along the lines of, Jesus is nice, you should pray, you should love people. Um, When I was in third grade, my church was using the old workbook system for leading Sunday school. You'd hear the lesson and fill in blanks in in the workbook. Um, I had grown up in church. I already knew all the stories. Uh, I knew what the curriculum was about. And so I would go into the Sunday school before class started, get out my workbook, fill in all the answers, and then Sunday school would start, and I'd sit there with my arms folded. Um, I was bored, and I'm sure I was a joy to have in, in class. So when I say seek out ways to love, I'm not reverting to primary school and saying to have nice feelings instead of mean feelings, because at 45, I still get bored with platitudes like that. I am talking about active effort and a lifetime dedication to service, seeking that opportunity like a buried treasure somewhere. Seek out ways to love. Read back a couple of chapters uh, to when this time in the room started in chapter 13. Uh, Before Jesus told the disciples they should love each other, he'd already spent hours with them. He'd fed them. He washed their feet. He talked about spiritual things. He listened to doubts they were having. He shared personal things about his own life. Uh, One advice they give to uh, people tend to uh, give to new novelists is to show, don't tell. Before you write it down, show something in the scene so you can see what you're telling them. Jesus certainly did love, tell people that he loved them, but he showed them first. He sought ways to love. Number three, watch for bears. Jesus called them wolves. John the Baptist called them vipers. There are people who are experts at talking religion. They may even quote Jesus and make it seem like they're your brothers. But if what they want in return is power in the form of money or votes or influence, or if their actions ignore the needs of the weak, be careful. They might be bears. 
they might be doing damage to Jesus' art. And there will always be bears. They were here before you. They'll be here after you. You find a time to move in, love people, and make something beautiful. And it'll be visible whether the bears appreciate it or not. Let's pray and we'll sing. God, thanks a lot for um, giving us a chance to uh, look at the words of your son. And I pray that uh, we will see them as um, the direct message they were, that they, were, they will be... Um, they will be cloaked in the everyday. They will seek them in the everyday and not just expect them uh, from pulpits and from high sermons, but from uh, the things that we, that we see um, in our lives continually. Amen.